Welcome to the award-winning Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. And today we kick off a three-part series called 99 Problems. And today's part one, which is, you know, the working title is 99 Problems, and the criminal justice system is a lot of them. And you'll see why. (laughs) But first, can we talk about my little sing-song? Yes, let's talk about how we're in an award-winning podcast. High five through the phone, poof, yeah. Last night, we were awarded best episode for the inaugural Colorado Podcast Awards. And it was for, yay, right? Can you do a little high five, guys? It is for the episode with Crystal Echo Hawk. And we were so excited, especially about this episode, because it highlighted a Native American perspective and narrative that, quite frankly, is ignored in this country. So that got traction. I want all of you to go back and listen to it and tell somebody about it because that was mind-blowing, at least for me. Misasha, you agree, right? I mean, it was one of our best episodes. I learned so much. Crystal is amazing. That is so exciting that we got recognition for that, for the purpose of getting that message out. So thank you to everybody who was involved in making that happen. You guys rock. Yes, thank you. I mean, that plus the Fortune Magazine shout out, Yes. Right? Yeah. We've been getting a lot of press recently. So thank you guys for continuing to spread the word. We really appreciate that. And then do you want to do a real live time update on the presidential race? Because you just dropped a really funny line before we started recording. I was reading an article before we started recording. And so today we're recording on December 4th. And yesterday, Kamala Harris just, you know, her campaign effectively ended for president, which then I was reading this article this morning and the headline was the 2020 election is now very male and very pale, which is a perfect, nice alliteration too, but a perfect way of really encapsulating what we're seeing through the candidates. And it's especially important now as we're really going into the issues that we think are going to be big issues for the 2020 election, that as we're keeping those issues in mind, we're also looking at the candidates. And so we, while, you know, a lot of people felt that Kamala Harris was not going to be the eventual nominee for president from the Democratic Party, I think it's important to take a moment and recognize that she is a Black woman who was in the position of running for president. And that is a big thing because we have not seen that in this country. And and sure, a lot of people also have theorized that a black woman would not win against Donald Trump. But to have her in the race at all is a big step. And hopefully in 2024, we're going to get even closer to a reflection of our actual population in our presidential candidate. So then let's tackle the issues. Criminal justice is going to be the first arc here, folks. So... You know, I think sometimes I might go at this point, why should I care? I'm really well behaved. I'm a good girl, you know, but this shit matters. And oh, by the way, this is going to be explicit just because even in the lyrics that we're going to mention about a song, so just from, I might as well let the words fly because this episode has already gone down the shitter. (laughs) (laughs) So talk to me. Okay. So as you know, because this has stemmed back from our many years of friendship, I love Jay-Z. You know, maybe a little bit less because of his connections with the NFL these days, but whatever. And I particularly love Jay-Z lyrics because unlike all that auto-tune BS and mindless rapping these days, of which my nephew, my nephew actually does not know who Jay-Z is. Like he knows who Cardi B is. He knows who Migos is. 
he doesn't know who Jay-Z is. And I'm like, Jay-Z is actually still rapping today. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, you know, but Jay-Z, what I particularly love about him is that he's saying something in his bars, like in his lyrics. And this set of lyrics in particular that we're going to talk about highlights what our whole topic is today, the criminal justice system. So, but before we get into that, let's put this in perspective a little bit. Sarah. Yes, ma'am. How many times have you been pulled over while driving? I have received speeding tickets with those people at the side of the road that are sneaky, (laughs) but I have never actually been pulled over ever. Interesting. Have you? Yeah. Yeah. At 16, I was definitely going way above the suggested speed limits. Nice job, California. Thank you. What are you doing there, race driver? It's a long story. I was going to a photo shoot. Wow. There's a, okay. We'll unpack that later. Okay. Like I said, long story, but the policeman, I remember that it was CHP and he was like, oh, I'm just going to write 65 plus because, you know, I was really going 80 something. Does your mom know this? Is she going to hear this episode? Well, they did because in order to get this ticket expunged from your record, you have to go like meet with a judge and your parent. So yeah, my parents are very aware of the ticket. (laughs) Yeah. And then I've been pulled over, I think, one other time when I was super pregnant with one of the boys. I don't remember which one. So how did it feel when you got pulled over? Like a super high level of anxiety, because I think you see those flashing lights behind you and you freak out, right? Internally. I mean, sometimes externally, but it's so many emotions and you don't, I think it's the emotion of getting caught, you know, especially if you're speeding, it's the emotion of you don't want to be in trouble. It's the unknown of what's going to happen to you, all those things. And it sort of culminates in an anxiety that's big. Right. And that's because you know, you're doing something you probably shouldn't, you probably already know. Yeah. And you're worried about the consequences. So when you get in the car to go to the store or the mall, or to get the kids or to run whatever errand to target like a 1000 times a week as we do as mothers, but among the things you think about, maybe, you know, texting while driving or icy roads, in my case, or crappy mall parking in the holidays, is being pulled over and racially profiled one of your concerns? Nope. And the only time I think about being pulled over is if I'm going at a speed I probably shouldn't be going at. And you see the cop car or the cop motorcycle. Yes. Oh, crap. I got to slow down like right this second. That's the only time I really start to think about getting pulled over or if I see someone else getting pulled over. What about you? The same. I mean, I pass, if you will, or what's the phrase? I don't even know what I'm supposed to say, but like, I am a suburban housewife driving an SUV. I'm not really concerned. (laughs) I mean, I'm not suburban exactly, but you know what I mean. Like, I don't feel that that would be a reason I would be targeted. It has never crossed my mind. So for people like me and you, like, I don't know, anybody who's listening who might not get what we're talking about, let's listen to these (laughs) lyrics. Should I do the lyrics? Oh my God. So the backstory behind this is Sarah tried to rap these when we were doing our pre-call and it was so funny that I think you should. I think you should. I'm just going to do it in just a couple because oh, it's going to make me so happy. Okay. So for people who don't know or do know Jay-Z's music, please forgive me. (laughs) This song is called 99 Problems. (laughs) Oh, God. Do it. Now you have to. You're committed. Years 94 and my drunk is raw in my rearview mirror is a motherfucking law. I got two choices, y'all. Pull over the car or hmm, bounce a devil. Put the pedal to the floor. Okay, I'm done. Oh, my God. I like couldn't even look at you during that part. I'm like looking down at my computer, basically crying. Um, 
So I won't do that anymore. And I'm sorry to <laughs> the general public, but can you read the lyrics? Because I think it's important to listen to actually what he is saying. Yes. And the reason why we're not playing the actual song is my legal attorney side. We want to avoid any potential copyright issues with the music. So in Jay-Z's words, years 94 and my trunk is raw and my rear view mirror is the motherfucking law. I got two choices, y'all. Pull over the car or hmm, bounce on the devil. Put the pedal to the floor. Now, I ain't trying to see no highway chase with Jake. Plus, I got a few dollars. I could fight the case. So I pull over to the side of the road. I heard, son, do you know why I'm stopping you for? Because I'm young and I'm black and my hat's real low. Or do I look like a mind reader, sir? I don't know. Am I under arrest or should I guess some more? Well, you was doing 55 and the 54. Uh Uh-huh. License and registration and step out of the car. Are you carrying a weapon on you? I know a lot of you are. I ain't stepping out of shit. All my paper's legit. Well, do you mind if I look around the car a little bit? Well, my glove compartment is locked. So is the trunk in the back. And I know my rights. So you're going to need a warrant for that. Aren't you sharp as a tack? You some type of lawyer or something? Somebody important or something? Chal, I am past the bar, but I know a little bit. Enough that you won't illegally search my shit. Well, we'll see how smart you are when the canine come. I got 99 problems, but a bitch ain't one. Hit me. Oh. And I think if you grew up or you were listening to music actively when Jay-Z came out with this song, you know the lyrics, you know the beat, or you've probably sung along on some level but when you really stop to listen to what he's saying in this song this is i think so powerful because it highlights the problem of dwb which is not dmv or dui but dwb which is driving while black and i think if you are a black person in this country this song is not just a song it is a detailed description of your experience while driving. Yeah. I mean, I've actually talked to even growing up in college, talking to some of my friends who are black, who talked about this or talked about they had a nice car. They were walking out to their BMW with their key in their hands and the cops stopped them, slammed their head on the hood of their car. And were like, this is not your car. And he's like, I have the keys right here. Like, my jaw dropped because I have never experienced, nor did I know anybody in my family who had ever experienced something like that. And so that was when I first was like, oh, it's not an exaggeration. Like, this shit happens in this country. Yeah, and I think that the fact, when we were talking about traffic stops earlier, right, we never talked about, you know, and I never conceptualized, and I don't think you do either, that we might be asked to step out of the car to be forcibly searched, to have our car searched, you know, in a random traffic stop to be arrested. And I think that is our expectation because of how we look. And it's very different if you're driving while black, because the likelihood is you're going to be stopped. You're going to be asked sometimes very forcefully if your car can be searched or not asked at all. You have to basically be an amateur lawyer to know your rights in this scenario, because if you don't know your rights, that is exactly what's going to happen to you. You And then you might be frisked or arrested or beat up or even killed, as we've seen recently and tragically, sometimes in front of your own family who are with you. Yeah. I mean, I guess I have two questions for you here. What are your rights in a traffic stop? If you can just really quickly go over that. And then the second question or point, I guess, is this has probably been going on for a really long time. But with the advent of smartphones since 2012, pretty much everyone's got a phone that has a camera. Yeah. We're probably seeing a lot more of what has always been happening. And it is 
disgusting and heartbreaking and awful. And it does happen. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, what Jay-Z is talking about in 99 Problems is the guys, basically the police officer, the highway patrol is asking him to get out of the car and he's asking to search his car. But you can't search a car unless you have probable cause. And that means you see a gun, you see, you know, open drug paraphernalia, but that you can't just pop the trunk, you know, for example, because that's not visible. That's not probable cause. So when they're asking you to get out of your car, when they're asking you questions, you can immediately, I mean, and I've heard about DUIs as well, which is something separate. You want them to take you to the station. Basically, you want to get a lawyer. You want to make sure that you are not sharing any information that you shouldn't be sharing, which is pretty much anything. Like if this ever happened to me, I'd be saying like, I want to go to the station and I want an attorney once I'm there. So, but if you didn't know that, and I don't even know all of the rules around traffic stops, because this is not something I deal with, you know, imagine how you feel when this is happening to you. With all that adrenaline in your system. Right. And you're scared. And let's say you're young and you know you don't even have the money for an attorney, let's say, right? So, and you don't even know, you've never met anyone who is an attorney. And the police here are sort of supposed to be the figures that are helpful, but clearly here, they're not out to help you. So that's a lot of emotions all in one. Yeah. And I think what we're trying to get at is it is different depending on the color of your skin, how you're treated and the things that can happen to you, the risks that are there. But there are people, and I don't know if these people are listening to this particular show, but they might be, you know, for all the people who are probably not black, who may be like, bullshit, you're totally overreacting. This does not happen. And I say this because I was in a room having a racial conversation with probably a hundred adults one time, and a mixed race couple stood up and said they don't like their teenage son, who looks black, wear a hoodie out of the house because they're really afraid the kid might not come back. Like, it's just a fear that they have. And a white woman stood up after that and said, I think that couple's overreacting. I think they're being too sensitive because, quote, that would never happen here. So who are you to say what'll happen or not? Like, is someone a mind reader? How could you discount someone's true fear? And I guess it's kind of parallel to, kind of, not really, but as a woman... If for any women who are listening, like, have you ever felt like maybe you shouldn't wear a, a certain outfit to a certain party because it's a little too sexy? Or if you really wanted to get exercise, but it was already night out or it's four in the morning, would you be like, yeah, I'm totally going to go by myself. It's fine. I can just go to Central Park in New York City and I'll be totally fine. Or would you be like, mm, it's not guaranteed that something won't happen. So I'm a little concerned and I might make a different choice, right? It's sort of like that fear based on how you show up in the world it's not to say things always happen, but they could and the chances are higher because of how you show up in the world. And so for people who are feeling a little skeptical or even who are not, here are some facts. Here are some research to discount your disbelief. And there's a lot of them, so bear with me for a second. But in their book, Suspect Citizens, Frank Baumgartner, Derek Epp, and Kelsey Shobe reviewed 20 million traffic stops. An interview with The Post, they shared what they found, which was that blacks are almost twice as likely to be pulled over as whites, even though whites drive more on average. Blacks are more likely to be searched following a stop, and just by getting in a car, a black driver has about twice the odds of being pulled over and about four times the odds of being searched. And this was true. They were more likely to be searched despite the fact that they're less likely to be found with contraband as a result of those searches. 
That's out of 20 million traffic stops. I thought that part is so fascinating also that even though statistically they are found with less contraband, black drivers are still more likely to be searched and at a rate that's not just close to white drivers either. Right, exactly. So a few more stats. The 2013 Justice Department study found that black and Latino drivers are more likely to be searched once they have been pulled over. About 2% of white motorists are searched versus 6% of black drivers and 7% of Latinos. In 2015, the Charleston Post and Courier looked at incidences in which police stopped motorists but didn't issue a citation. These are called pretext stops because they suggest that the officer was profiling the motorist as a possible drug courier or suspected the motorist of other crimes. And after adjusting for the population, blacks in nearly every part of their state were significantly more likely to be the subject of such stops. And then in 2017, a study of four and a half million traffic stops by the 100 largest police departments in North Carolina found that blacks and Latinos were more likely to be searched than whites, even though searches of white motorists were more likely than the others to turn up contraband in that case, right? Like, again, it repeats that article with much more specific statistics. So... That's what's happening. These are just traffic stops. We'll talk to you about some more studies and stats at the tail end of this episode. But this is a big bias, is a big part of our criminal justice system today. And that's why we're talking about it. Yeah. And it's a big issue in the 2020 election with several candidates talking about specific reforms. And as we go through this arc, we will talk to you too and talk to each other about what the president and the office of the president has power to do regarding criminal justice and what they need Congress for, because that's also really important when you think about issues that are being raised by candidates. But we think in order to really understand and make sense of what criminal justice is and why these issues are hot topic issues, we need to talk a little bit about the basics. So once we have the basics down, we can understand the why behind why this is so important. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So let's start. What's the criminal justice system? And it is a trifecta of agencies, law enforcement, the courts, and the correctional facilities like jails and prisons that work together to enforce the rule of law. So there are different levels within each jurisdiction. So there's the local level, there's the state level, and there are the federal levels. So they all coexist and they all sort of have this same goal of, you know, keeping the rule of law but they work in different parts of this goal. So law enforcement works to prevent crime, courts strive to enact justice once a crime is committed, and corrections focuses on retribution and rehabilitation. More usually on the retribution side than rehabilitation in our country right now, but that's another conversation, yeah. So beyond these three main components, there's a whole bunch of hierarchy within the state and federal levels. So state systems in the criminal justice system commonly consist of an attorney general's office, departments of public safety, state police and highway patrol, and even college campus and capital police, if those are state institutions. The federal system includes the Department of Justice, the Department of Homeland Security, and a number of federal agencies and law enforcement groups that report to these departments, including the FBI, the U.S. Marshals Service, and the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Okay. All right. Got it. I wouldn't have even thought college campus and Capitol Police, so that's good to have that in my head, too. Yeah. So let's dive a little bit into each branch separately, starting with law enforcement. So as we discussed, the federal branch of law enforcement includes like a whole bunch of stuff. So there's two main departments and dozens of individual agencies and thousands of full-time officers. So the first main department is the Department of Justice, 
and it maintains the greatest level of responsibility for upholding federal law enforcement. And they have a lot of agencies to support them on this, the FBI, the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, the U.S. Marshal Service, and the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Other important federal law enforcement agencies include the TSA, yes, the same TSA that you see at the airports, the Secret Service, Customs and Border Protection, and Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And they all roll up into the Department of Homeland Security. So you've got the DOJ and the Department of Homeland Security as sort of the two main departments. The Coast Guard also reports the Department of Homeland Security, except in times of war when it then reports to the Department of Defense. So local and state law enforcement handle the majority of crimes in the U.S. And the federal government sort of comes in when crimes are committed on federal property or it's out of sort of the mandate of what the states can do. Because the U.S. Constitution gives all the powers to the states that are not expressly given to the government and prohibited for states to have. So states do have a lot of leeway, as we've seen, in how they enact certain laws. And it's the same for law enforcement, because states are allowed to establish and enforce laws to protect public health, safety, and welfare. So when you're thinking about federal police power, it's really about civil rights, about certain intellectual property like patents, immigration, interstate commerce, which means you're taking something from one state to another, and other crimes committed across state lines. But then state police and local police handle everything else. So that's interesting that there is such a division between state and federal. I didn't realize that the states have so much power and that they're so different. I got it when we talk about education, there are different standards, but I really didn't think to look at what law enforcement looks like in a state before I choose to move there. So that's interesting. Now, one thing on law enforcement that I wanted to talk about sort of in real life is that I went to college with a guy named Phil Goff and we sang in a gospel choir together. So total side note, Misasha, you and I have said like, I don't know when I got interested in like, now that I'm on a podcast talking about race and black people. I mean, I was like, when have I thought about it before you married your husband? But I realized being in a gospel choir, I was like, I guess I've always, you know, since then been putting myself in situations where I'm in diverse areas since I was a teenager. So now it makes more sense why I'm here. But anyway, Dr. Philip Atiba Goff has expertise, which comes from being a scientist who studies how our minds learn to associate blackness and crime and misperceive black children as older than they actually are. And it also comes from studying actual police behavior, which is how he knows that every year about one in five adults in the United States has contact with law enforcement. And out of those people, about a million are targeted for police use of force. And if you're black, you're two to four times more likely to be targeted for that force than if you're white. And he is doing some really cool stuff and has an incredible TED talk that I want you all to watch if you haven't already. But he basically says, you know, you and I talk, Misasha, about racism and the, how it's an institution. It's not necessarily just a feeling that it's not me, but it, we're talking about it as historic institutions. But it's still, you know, racism is talked about as a feeling or an attitude, an injustice. And so in his talk, he said, what if we change the definition of racism from measuring attitudes to behaviors, and if you can identify certain behaviors, you can transform what might be an insolvable problem to something that you can solve because you can measure behavior. So he now has the Center for Policing Equity, which focuses on using CompStat, which is basically the stats that identify crime data, tracks it, identifies patterns, and allows police departments locally to hold themselves accountable to public safety goals. And so he says, for example, 
And he uses Minneapolis in his TED talk. But he says, you know, if the community in Minneapolis asked their police department to fix the moral failings of race in policing, they'd be like, what the hell does that mean? But if the community says, hey, your data says you're beating up a lot of homeless folks, you want to stop that? That is something police can learn how to do. And then in this case, they did. So I will email that talk out to those of you who are on our list. But I thought that was an interesting take on marrying racism and the problems that we're having with law enforcement targeting people based on the color of their skin and trying to make that a solvable problem. Yeah, I love that because behavior is a very tangible thing, right? You can see with body cameras and stuff, you can see behavior, but you and you can directly discuss that and in a way that an attitude is so transient and so intangible, right? So I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to share that part about law enforcement stuff. All right, moving on from law enforcement to the court system. So that's the second branch of criminal justice in our country. And the United States criminal justice system with regards to courts consists of courts at the federal and state levels. So each level follows similar procedures, but they are federal courts and state courts are independent of each other because they hear different types of cases. So state courts have like sort of broad authority to hear cases regarding things that like family disputes, broken contracts, traffic violations, and criminal activities such as assaults or robberies. But federal courts commonly hear cases in which the U.S. is a party, cases dealing with federal law or constitutional violations, and cases in specific areas of the law like bankruptcy or patent. U.S. courts work closely with law enforcement and corrections, so in this way, the criminal justice system is supposed to function altogether in scenarios such as deciding whether or not to hear a case. I think we've all seen law and order enough so that you see that interplay between the officers and the arrest, and then, you know, they discuss I'm totally raising my hand. Did you know that I was an extra on Law and Order when I was living in New York? Yes, I was actually looking at you when I said that. Yeah. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I loved that show back in the day. That was so funny. All right, sorry. Well, you can still watch it because it's on season like 27. But anyway, SVU is at least. But okay, so back to how they work together. So they decide whether or not to hear a case. They share intelligence among groups. They ask law enforcement officers to testify during a trial, which is a whole separate issue. They engage in pre-sentencing investigations, which means they look into trying to determine what sentence someone gets if they're convicted of the crime. And they determine alternative sentencing options because in the United States, sentencing is a guideline largely. So if you've ever listened to true crime episodes too, you know that there is a range of years or months that you can be sentenced for a crime, depending on the severity of it, depending if it's a jury trial And the tricky part about juries is that in a jury trial, the jury determines, you know, A, the guilt and B, the sentencing. And so there has been a lot of scrutiny, especially recently on the jury pool and who is in the jury pool. And is the jury pool actually representative of the people who are being tried in the court? And there has been instances where they have found that attorneys, sometimes some who work for the state, have really worked to keep minorities off juries because, and especially in states where you need a very low number of jurors to 
to sort of vote that there is reasonable doubt or there isn't a preponderance of the evidence, depending on your standards. And I'll avoid from getting super technical lawyery here, but basically because they want to make sure the jury convicts. And that has a lot to do with what we talked about. When you see someone who looks like you, when you see someone who has a similar experience to you, you understand them. You may feel a different way. It's easier to be empathetic. And so there is a lot of scrutiny around juries and picking them. So if you are an attorney out there and you have experience in this, hopefully that is something that you are mindful of as well. Well, and that's interesting because we talk so much about you know, the sentencing for certain crimes seems outsized compared, you know, because there is no standard, as you say, and there's leeway, you can look at people like those in the college scandal compared to, say, you know, a person of color who committed a really minor infraction who was given much more, wound up spending a lot more time in jail than people who blatantly did illegal immoral things. And because if you unless you're aware of the potential for bias playing into those sentences, that will continue to happen. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of bias on diversity. There's a lot of bias based on socioeconomic status, too, because if I think the college admission scandal really highlighted what money can do. Right. And the power of money and privilege combined. And I think that especially when you have defendants who don't have money, who can't even make bail, and that's a whole nother part of the criminal justice system that is broken in a lot of ways, then you have so many issues that are going on that factor into the treatment of people in the criminal justice system, which we're going to talk about too in our next episode. Mm -hmm. That's right. And so going on to that on the correction side, I mean, you have some crazy staggering stats here. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, we think about law enforcement in the courts a lot because they work to identify, intercept individuals involved in criminal activity. But the correction system is sort of the third part of this. And it does a whole bunch of stuff, such as keeping criminal populations separate. They enact punishments for wrongdoing and they promote rehabilitation of wrongdoers. Although, as you mentioned, we have been focused less on rehabilitation and in recent years. That would be fascinating to talk to someone who works in that system. I would love that at some stage. Yeah. Same. The U.S. correction system stands alone as the largest system of its type in the world, though. And this stat was like the jaw-dropping one. Though home to less than 5% of the world's population, the U.S. holds nearly 25% of the world's prisoners, which is the highest global per capita rate of incarceration. I'm just shaking my head. Like, how? What? I know, right? Well, I mean, the prison systems here are massive and intense because we have multiple state and federal correction systems that act independently, although they all sort of allegedly follow similar procedures and protocols. So prisons can be publicly or privately operated. And, you know, state and federal correctional facilities most commonly interact when they're transferring inmates between the two. I just had this thought when you gave that stat. Yeah. You know, when so many people, sometimes people will push back and this pisses me off to hear it, but I've heard it. So I'm going to say it. Some people were like, well, there's more black people in prison because they commit more of the crimes, right? Like they're just inherently bad people or whatever. And you just want to shake your head. Yeah. Yet. So does that mean that since the U.S. holds nearly 25 percent of the world's prisoners, that we are inherently more evil, misbehaved people than the rest of the world? Right. Like if you're going to apply that 
argument to black people in the prisons, then you have to apply it to the United States in order to be consistent and not hypocritical if you're going solely by the numbers of people who are incarcerated. So is the U.S. really that much worse than the rest of the world or is the system broken? Yeah. I mean, although I think people would argue away from that and say like, well, are the white people in the U.S. doing okay though? Versus if you look at the prison population. But I mean, as we've discussed and we will discuss, what are people in prison for? And, you know, so are you inherently bad because you're in prison? I don't think so. And the charges that can put you in prison, especially in states like California, where it's, you know, we had the three strikes law, right? So your third offense, you're in prison. Yeah, I think that this stat alone shows that we have something wrong with our criminal justice system. Yeah. And next week, we're going to talk about somebody like an individual's story. So that I'm really looking forward to to really put a person to this story. But okay, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, keep it coming. As long as you're not rapping again. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Um, Okay. Back to incarceration. So incarceration is basically the confinement of someone in prison. And as I think we've all seen through TV or we've probably seen through TV or even more heartbreakingly seen through someone you know, or maybe you, daily prison life is very restrictive, right? So if you're in prison, they're telling you what to do at every moment of the day and they're watching you do it. But there's other parts of the corrections, you know, component, and that's parole or probation or individuals who are sometimes sentenced to community service. And those people live outside of a prison. And if you're assigned to community service by the court, you know, you work X number of hours for a nonprofit or something. And But parole and probation both involve supervision and specific rules and guidelines around travel, curfews, and required drug tests. And parole typically occurs after an individual gets out of prison early, but probation occurs before an individual goes to prison. So what's also shocking, along with the fact that we have 25% of the world's prisoners, is we have a very high rate of recidivism, which means that the likelihood that a convicted criminal will return to prison is relatively high. And this most commonly occurs because individuals violate the terms of their parole. So remember, you're out early, you're on parole. A 2002 nationwide study showed that nearly 68% of prisoners faced rearrest within three years of their release, and 47% were ultimately reconvicted. I mean, I think this speaks so much. I agree with you. I don't think this necessarily means that all of these people are inherently evil human beings who need to be locked away. I think it speaks to our bias about people who have been convicted of something or who have spent time in prison, about lack of opportunity or acceptance or rehabilitation in the system. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. I don't know the solution, but I am pretty stoked that we collectively have been in contact with two organizations that are working to help people who are re-entering society from prison. One of them is the Second Chances Farm, which is on the East Coast. They have hydroponic farms to reduce our carbon footprint by growing food locally every day of the year while replacing recidivism with compassionate capitalism. So basically, they're taking people who are coming out of prison and turning them into entrepreneurs and residents. They're calling them like agripreneurs. So it's really giving people a purpose once they are released from prison and an opportunity to have income and also do the earth some good while we're doing it. And then the second organization that just found us on social media actually is called Forgive Everyone. And they are a restorative justice brand of clothing. So their goal, they're just starting out, but their goal is to create designs on apparel like t-shirts and that sort of stuff. And eventually art and other mediums because they want to start conversations 
with people who are educated on the criminal justice system and also people who aren't educated on the issues because they want to get to the point where they can scale and provide employment to men and women coming out of prison. So you can find them. They're called Forgive Everyone, and they're online as well. And it's cool that places like this are popping up because they recognize that there's a problem and they're creating opportunity. Yeah. Well, as you were saying this, I was thinking about the TED Talk that I had sent you about that guy who had gone to prison and had gotten out of prison. And he had said that the thing that was keeping him going in prison was his the contact that he had with his family, that his mother was there and she kept coming and she kept coming every week. And now that he's out and he realized how difficult it was to get a job as a felon and how our society is not really structured towards rehabilitation in that way. And so he created, he now owns his own company in which he facilitates communications between people who are in prison and those on the outside to give them that lifeline to get them out and get them past this recidivism rate. So I think we should circulate that TED Talk too, because that was amazing. Yeah. But I think this is great. And all of these things show that we recognize that there is an issue with this because how we are structured currently is helping to promote that recidivism. So anything we can do to break that cycle is really powerful, I think. And finally, along with corrections and along with our criminal justice system, it's also important to really consider tribal law. So if you haven't heard our interview with Crystal Echohawk, which we, you know, our award-winning interview with Crystal Echohawk, which discusses, and in that she discusses the independence or lack thereof of the over 500 tribes that live in the United States. So I would go back and listen to that if you want some background. But going on from that, federally recognized Native American tribes possess a form of, of sovereign rule that preserves the inherent rights of each tribe to form their own governments, make and enforce civil and criminal law, collect taxes, and establish and regulate tribal citizenship. So basically, there were Supreme Court decisions dating back to 1832 that allowed for this to happen, although there's clearly flaws. So yeah, because I mean, they still relocated all the Native Americans onto reservations, but it did serve as a foundation for the principle of tribal rule and to have that sovereign rule. And the Supreme Court at that point called tribal nations distinct independent political communities retaining their original natural rights. So there's so federal Native American law, like concerns relationships between tribal, state and federal government. Tribal law exists to govern the tribes, members and territories and tribal governments and tribal justice systems function in really similar ways to our state systems. So tribal laws enforced by their own enforcement, tribal law enforcement, and tribal courts that possess civil justice over tribal members and non-members who reside or do business within federal reservations. So if you're doing business on a federal reservation, you are subject to tribal law and tribal courts. So I think that what's also interesting, and I didn't know this, is that Native, along with this, their own law enforcement and courts, Native American reservations house more than 90 correctional facilities. So, you know, that's the overarching view. And so it seems like there are three branches of our criminal justice system that work together. And in theory, they do because they're all working to, you know, maintain the rule of law in this country. But I think what's important for us to remember, too, is the political and social climate that was in place when these systems were created. That's so true, because this is not. Yeah, that was when our I mean, it was long time ago. 
Right. So, for example, discriminatory criminal justice policies and practices have historically and unjustifiably targeted Black people since the Reconstruction era to capitalize on a loophole in the 13th Amendment that said that citizens cannot be enslaved unless convicted of a crime. So black codes, vagrancy laws, and convict leasing were all used to continue post-slavery control over newly freed people because that the 13th Amendment said that you couldn't be enslaved, although if you were a criminal, you could be. So that was written in so that we could kind of continue slavery, even though. And does that mean so when you talk about like cleanup crews. Like, is that what they're talking? I mean, obviously, back in the day, they were forced to actually work and go back to the plantations, I think, right? But now you have like, chain gangs or people cleaning up the sides of the road. Does that count as this enslavement idea? Or is that totally different? Am I misunderstanding? I think it's totally different. I think the people cleaning up the side of the road are like community service, largely that component of corrections. But so going back to those policies, those were put in place a lot of times in the post-Reconstruction era where there was a clear motivation and that was to keep slavery going even though we weren't, in theory, enslaving anyone anymore. So the high arrest and incarceration rates of Black Americans based on these racist policies deeply informed those national discussions about racial differences that continue to this day. And we're going to talk more about this in our next episode where we talk about that individual situation which occurred in Mississippi, a state that went real big into, you know, Reconstruction era, criminal justice, let's keep Black people enslaved theories. Right. Well, on this study... In 2010, I was like, what? <laughs> Basically, a 2010 study found that white Americans overestimate the share of burglaries, illegal drug sales, and juvenile crime committed by black people by approximately 20 to 30%. That's crazy. So basically, it'd be like, oh, yeah, no, I think you just overestimate. White Americans think that black people commit way more crimes than they actually do. Yeah. So that's good to keep in mind. Like, just give yourself a reality check because... It's a belief that is held widely, you know, and if you have that belief, like, just hear what we're saying mm -hmm. and just give yourself a moment to be like, huh, I thought that too. Yeah. Well, and that is not only a belief that's widely believed, it's deeply held, right? Because we have these years, you know, 150 years of history where our country has sort of built on these beliefs. Yeah. So when you're giving yourself that moment you know, think about what got you to believe this, you know, that is also, I think, really telling to think about the history of your personal history, if you do. Yeah. So we already told you what we're going to come back to in the next couple of episodes. But for now, we love stats. So if we want to round this out by hitting you over the head with a few more stats in case you didn't believe what we were saying, and in case you thought it was a belief or a mistaken thought that we have. But here's a few more eye opening stats that highlight how race factors into our justice system. Where should we start? Should we talk about Ferguson? Yeah. So between 2012 and 2014, black people in Ferguson, Missouri, accounted for 85% of vehicle stops, 90% of citations, and 93% of arrests, despite only making up 67% of the population. And you're like, you guys are probably like, yeah, 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 you told us this already. Sure enough, blacks were more than twice as likely as whites to be searched after traffic stops, even though they proved to be 26% less likely to be in possession of illegal drugs or weapons. And then this other stuff that's not even in the car between 2011 and 2013, blacks also got 95% of jaywalking tickets and 94% of tickets for, quote, failure to comply. Jaywalking tickets. 
Yeah. Anyway, you can talk about this stuff because I'm just like, (laughs) I know. Well, and the Justice Department also found that the racial discrepancy for speeding tickets increased dramatically when researchers looked at tickets based only on an officer's word versus tickets based on objective evidence such as radar. So that's where personal bias comes in. And I find that fascinating. So black people facing similar low level charges as white people were 68 percent less likely to see those charges dismissed in court. And we'll talk about that more in our next episode. But more than 90 percent of the arrest warrants stemming from failure to pay, failure to appear, and that's in court or paying a traffic ticket, were issued for black people. And I think this goes directly to socioeconomic discrepancies and, you know, in terms of poverty and institutional poverty. And that ties directly back to what we were talking about in institutional discrimination post-Civil War. And I think, you know, we've heard about Ferguson. So we wanted to talk about because it was in the news, right? Everyone's hopefully heard of Ferguson. This other stat in St. Louis County also, but has a little bit more extreme stats to highlight what we're talking about. In the town of Florissant, I hope I'm saying that correctly, but 71% of the motorists pulled over by police in 2013 were black, but they only made up 27% of the town. Yeah right? You're such a minority and yet you're the ones being pulled over. And this happens in major cities too. A study of stop and frisk incidents in Boston between 2007 and 2010 that did not result in a citation or arrest found that 63% of stops were of black people. Black people made up 24% of the city's population and 97.5% of these encounters resulted in no arrest or seizure of contraband. That's crazy. That's so high. Yeah. Right? They just are getting stopped and frisked. For no reason. There was nothing to prove it. 2015 statistical analysis of police shootings found that the racial disparity in police shootings of black people could not be explained by higher crime rates in majority black communities between 2011 and 2014. Yeah, I think, you know, and it's not limited to traffic stops. It's, you know, and the true crime junkie in me really, you know, goes deep into this. But a 2018 post investigation found that murders of white people are more likely to be solved than murders of black people. There's also a strong correlation rate between areas that are black majority and low income and the areas with the lowest clearance rate for homicides, which means the lowest amount of homicides that are solved. Similarly, a study published in June reviewed every reported homicide between 1976 and 2009 and found that homicides with white victims are significantly more likely to be cleared by the arrest of a suspect than are homicides with minority victims. And that's all minorities. It's just a lot. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think we're talking about stuff other than traffic stops. So even going back to 2002, data show that when New York City was implementing its stop and frisk policy, white people generally made up only about 10% of such stops, despite making up 45% of the city. And then black and Latino people made up more than 80% of the stops, despite making up just over half of the city population. And again, fewer than 1% of the stops produced a gun which was the alleged reason for this stop and frisk policy in the first place. Yeah. I mean, this one I thought was amazing. Between 2012 and 2014, the Los Angeles Police Department received more than 1,350 citizen complaints of racial profiling, and they didn't uphold a single complaint. Yikes. That mean uphold means like they didn't follow up on? Yeah. I mean, they just, that's a lot of complaints to not even look at it. Right. Right. Yeah. A 2017 study of interactions between officers and citizens taken from, you know, the body cam footage, they found that officers speak with consistently less respect towards black versus white community members, even after controlling for the race of the officer, the severity of the infraction, the location of the stop and the outcome of the stop. 
which is basically controlling for everything else, right? Except for race, pretty much. Yeah. Right. I mean, and then this study in San Francisco in 2015. I mean, these are really recent studies, folks. Yeah. Black women are just 6% of the female population of San Francisco, but they account for 45.5% of female arrests. And I think this is really important because, you know, sometimes and a lot of times we talk about the post-Reconstruction South, right? And I think there are a lot of viewpoints about how the South is, acts differently than the rest of the country. But we are talking about major cities, New York, Boston, L.A., San Francisco, in which you see this disparity and disparity in treatment of blacks and other minorities in the criminal justice system. And I think, to be clear, we are not saying that there are never white people who are stopped wrongly or who are, you know, unfairly convicted or treated poorly. That absolutely does happen, too. But when you look at the statistics about the overall disparity and the huge amount of mistreatment and the fact that it basically defaults to that, if you are a minority, that's what we're really focusing on here. So you opened it up with 99 problems and the criminal justice system is a lot of them for sure. Stay tuned for the next episode in the series. We're going to break down what this looks like for juveniles. I mean, if you are a human being who knows a child, this is going to tug at your heartstrings and it's really important to open that up and feel what we're going to talk about next because we're talking about a young person in Mississippi and we're going to break it down what it looks like, especially if you're black. If you like what you've heard or you like what you're hearing, please take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use. It would mean a lot. That helps us spread the word about our podcast. Or if you're into direct sharing, tell a friend or five about us. And if you want any more information, go to our website at dearwhitewomen.com. We've got all the past episodes, email signups, and all our social media links from there so you can stay connected and get all the bonus material that we offer. We'll be right back. 